Well, we're now coming to our third week in the book of First Samuel, the third of Jeremy's weeks of summer vacation. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please open up to First Samuel chapter 3. We've seen in First Samuel 1 the story of Hannah. Last week we saw the stories of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And now we're going to look at First Samuel 3 this morning. So please, let's read God's word together. First Samuel 3. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. O God, you who dwell in inapproachable light, pray that the light of your word would shine on our hearts, that we would understand it, that we would see you, and that you would change us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. If you were born in a working class home in the 15th century, you likely would not have owned a copy of the scriptures in a language that you could read. 
And if you went to your church service on your Sunday morning, you would have heard a pastor speaking to you in a word that you could not understand. Most of the services were in Latin. Only a select few were given the opportunity to learn the language necessary to study the Bible. And it was in this context that men like John Huss and John Wycliffe, among others, worked to see to it that the scriptures were translated into the common language of their day, so that the common people, both men and women, would have access to the word of God. They were convinced that scripture alone was the source of authority in matters of faith and practice in the church. And in contrast to the view of those who held that the church provided infallible interpretation for the people. As you might imagine, their efforts to put Scripture into the hand of common people were not well received by those whose authority were called into question. In fact, councils of the church declared that both John Huss and John Wycliffe were heretics for this work and sentenced them to be burned at the stake. John Wycliffe had already died years earlier, but John Huss was still alive and he was burned at the stake for his work of seeking to bring the scriptures into the common language of the people of his day. But the seeds of his ministry, the seeds that he planted through his work, through his writings, through his preaching, and through his death, bore fruit about a century later. A German monk found his writings, read through his sermons, and began to question why the church had burned such a man. And the sermons of that man that had been written down persuaded this German monk that he also ought to bring the scriptures into the language of the common people. A German monk, a man named Martin Luther, would later translate the New Testament into German, the common language of his day. And through the work of these men and many others, the scriptures eventually came to be accessible to the common people, like you and I, in languages that we could understand without relying on the interpretation of trained clergy. Post tenebras lux, that's the Latin phrase that we translate after darkness, light. It became a rallying cry for the reformers who sought to bring the scriptures into the hands of the common people because they were persuaded that scripture alone was the authority that can be relied on in matters of the Christian faith. This same cry, after darkness, light, it describes the state of Israel in 1 Samuel 3. After a period of spiritual darkness, the word of God brought light and hope. It is through the word of God that we come to know God himself. He is the source of all that is good for our souls. The apostle prayed in apostle Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3:1. He prayed that the word of God would speed ahead and be honored. In other words, he prayed that the word of God would be held in high regard, that it would go forth mightily, that it would be clearly taught, expounded, discussed, applied, meditated upon, that it would shape the lives of the people of God. I've titled this sermon, After Darkness, Light. But if you wanted to add a subtitle, it would be this. May the word of God speed ahead. May the word of God speed ahead. If you were with us the last two weeks, you remember the scene here at Shiloh, where Samuel is ministering to the Lord. The worship of God is in utter decay. God is treated as a light and weightless thing. The priests of God, the sons of Eli, were worthless men who did not know the Lord. And they used their position in the worship of God as a platform to indulge their sinful desires. There is a great darkness over the land. God is not known and worshipped and adored as he deserves at Shiloh. 
And yet, we saw glimmers of hope in the service of this young man, Samuel, whom his mother, who had been devoted to the Lord by his mother, Hannah. We saw him repeatedly serving in the temple, ministering before the Lord in chapter 2, verse 18, in chapter 2, verse 26, in chapter 2, verse 21 as well. Samuel is in the presence of the Lord, ministering in the temple. And we remember that God had made promises to his people, that he would give them the land of Canaan, that he would raise up kings that would come from their offspring, that he would bless the nations of the world through them. And though these promises appear to be in jeopardy, in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. In 1 Samuel 3, these glimmers of hope begin to shine brighter and brighter. The chapter can be structured into three main sections. We have an introduction in verses 1 through 3. And then we have this main body of the text, verses 4 through 18, which is the narrative of Samuel's call. And then we have a closing summary in verses 19 to 21. Now, the, Samuel is the main character, but I want you to notice in verse, both verse 1 and verse 21... The author wants us to see the the role of the word of the Lord in this narrative. Notice in verse 1, he mentions the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And he closes in verse 21 by saying that the Lord revealed himself to, to, to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So I would suggest the following headings to structure the passage for us today. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see the absence of the word of God. In verses 4 through 18, we're going to see the arrival of the Word of God. And in verses 19 through 21, we're going to see the revelation of the God of the Word. The absence of the Word of God, verses 1 through 3, the arrival of the Word of God in verses 4 through 18, and the revelation of the God of the Word, verses 19 through 21. So we begin in verse 1. The absence of the word of God. Samuel is there ministering in the temple. And we read this interesting statement. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. I remember as a child being surprised when I read that verse because I had assumed that those who made it into the Bible must have lived in times when God was just freely speaking with his people. But it was not the case. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. This, this statement is actually a parallel statement. The first and second half say the same thing. When it says there was no frequent vision, the word for vision here is actually closely associated with the prophetic ministry. Those men who throughout the, throughout the Old Testament received visions from the Lord, some they were, were written down for us, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Some were just spoken. Think of like Nathan speaking to David. This word for a vision was associated with that ministry of those who spoke God's word to God's people. So, at this time, there was no frequent vision. There was no one speaking in that prophetic role in the, the nation of Israel. And parallel to that, we see the word of the Lord to the people was rare. In fact, going back to the time of Moses, remember Moses was the, the last major prophet. And since that time, there's only been one reference to a prophet It's been about 450 years. In Judges chapter 6, you read a a passing reference to a prophet. He's not named, and it doesn't appear that his ministry plays a major role in the spiritual leadership of the nation. So we've had this long period without prophets speaking the word of the Lord to the people. Now, the author doesn't explain this, but you're left to ask why. Why was the word of the Lord rare in those days? Why was God not speaking frequently to his people? And if you read through the Pentateuch, read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, over and over again, you, you might even just read over because it doesn't seem 
it seems just like a standard introduction. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Joshua. Over and over. But now there's a period of relative silence from God. Now, we are not able to plumb the depths of the reasons why God does what he does. He is God and he does what he pleases. But we do know from other places in Scripture that silence from God is actually a form of judgment upon his people. Now, when I talk about the silence of God, I don't mean an absolute silence. The scriptures are clear. The heavens declare the glory of God continuously. Every morning, every night, you see his glory. Throughout the day, look at the stars in the evening, you see his glory. His divine power is clearly and continuously displayed in the world that he has made. His general revelation in creation is never silent. But, There are times when God stops speaking in the form of special revelation through his prophets to the people. Consider the prophet Amos. He prophesied the word of God to the people of Israel and Judah around 760 B.C. The people of Israel at that time and Judah, they were living their own way, even though God had sent prophets to them, prophets who came to them to say, thus says the Lord. And the people of Israel did not want to hear those messages, so instead they raised up their own prophets. They found people who would tell them what they wanted to hear, And false prophets arose, and the people despised the word of God. They chose to replace it with a word that they wanted to hear, that fashioned a God into their own image of what they thought God should be like, and demanded of them only the things that they wanted to do for God. And so, because the people of Israel and Judah had despised the word of God, God pronounced this judgment upon them. You can find this in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. About 200 years later, this prophecy came to fulfillment against the people of God. Jeremiah lived through that time when Jerusalem was destroyed, and he wrote the following in Lamentations. As he lamented the destruction of Jerusalem, he said concerning that city, Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Though there were a few other prophets who spoke God's word during this time of exile, when they are in exile and they're returning into the land, yet we then find a period of relative silence from God at this time as well, about 450 years between the end of the Old Testament when God would raise up a new prophet, John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And so we can see, at least from that instance, that God's silence toward his people was a form of judgment upon them because they had neglected and despised and even sought to replace the word of God with their own word that would mold to their own sinful desires. And it's as if in response to this, God says, if you will despise my word and replace it with your own, then you will not hear from me. And we can certainly see the same features in our text. God had given his law to Moses. Moses had exhorted the people over and over again. If you read through Deuteronomy, you just you hear this theme over and over again. You're going into the land. God is going to drive them out from you. He's going to give you success. You're going to prosper. Do not forget the Lord your God. Do not become like the nations around you. Do not forget. Remember the Lord. 
And yet they forgot, didn't they? They turned away from the Lord. The book of Judges tells us that they had done what was right in their own eyes. And here we see this continuing in Shiloh. Eli's sons are corrupt. They are despising the word of God. They're using the worship of God to pursue their sinful pleasures. And Eli, their father, is not taking action. The word of God is rare. There is no frequent vision. God is, at least for a time, silent. Think about that for a moment. That God would be silent. The God of the universe, the one who is the source of all that is good, all that is beautiful, of life and and beauty and justice and happiness, that he would leave people to their sin, that he would leave them to their sin and be silent as they go their own way. To be without a word from God is to be without hope. It is to be in darkness. But... Even in verse 1, we see the author. He tells us that that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And you know, it's interesting there as he highlights this because this situation is not the norm. It's not the way that God normally deals with his people. It is an exception to the rule of the way that God acts toward his people. He's not normally silent toward them. As Francis Schaeffer famously wrote, He is there and he is not silent. Just consider for a moment the grace of God in his not being silent toward us. He doesn't owe us a word. He doesn't have to speak into our darkness. He could leave us in our sin, our despair, our rebellion, which lead to death and pain and destruction and eternal separation from God. We do not deserve to hear from him. He does not owe it to us, but in his abundant grace and mercy, he speaks to us. Even in in his words of judgment, even in his words of warning and condemnation, they display his grace. Remember when when Paul Kalkinen preached um, through the book of Jonah, and we saw a message of judgment that was delivered to the people of Nineveh. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It was a message of judgment, a word from God of condemnation, and yet embedded in that message of judgment was a message of hope. If you will repent of your sin, then God will accept you. He is a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And if you repent, he will show you mercy. And so it is whenever God speaks to his people. The fact that God even takes the initiative to speak to us despite our sin and corruption is a display of his grace toward us. And even this morning, you have the opportunity to hear from God through his word. Even this morning, God is speaking to us through his word. So let us not neglect this opportunity to hear from God. Verse 1 gives us that general condition that the word of the Lord was rare. Verses 2 and 3 further set the stage for the main event in this chapter. We see elderly Eli lying in his place and young Samuel lying down in the temple of the Lord near the ark of God. The ark is going to feature prominently in the coming chapters, but it's actually been some time since the ark of God has been mentioned in the narrative. It was only mentioned once in the book of Judges, and that was a passing reference. The ark was symbolic of the presence of God with his people. I think its mention here is significant to draw our minds to consider that even though the word of God has been rare, God is still with his people. He has not abandoned them. He is there, and he is not silent. So this is verse 1 through 3. 
We've seen the absence of the word of God. Now let's look at the main body of the narrative, verses 4 through 18, the arrival of the word of God. In verse 4 we read, Then the Lord called Samuel. We were camping recently, and we were playing up, playing cards at night, and we used a lantern that runs off Coleman fuel. And as we were playing, the, the light began to dim, and it happened gradually, so... I didn't really notice that it was that dim until it got to the point where we could hardly see or read our cards. So finally, I went and added fuel to the lantern. And when I turned up the lantern to full brightness, after I added the fuel, the the light shone so brightly, I wondered how I had let it get so dim before. And this is something of what we are to understand here in verse 4. In the darkness in Shiloh, the light of God's word all of a sudden breaks into the scene. The Lord calls to Samuel. We don't know much about the specifics of this call. Apparently, it was actually an audible voice, the sound of the Lord speaking. Samuel could hear it from where he lay in the temple, but Eli could not. It's possible that God spoke from the ark of the Lord, but we don't know the specifics. From the fact that the lamp of God, which was to burn through the night, had not gone out, it's likely near the early morning hours. And we see the repetition of the same pattern three times. The Lord calls... Samuel concludes that Eli is calling him. He goes to Eli, and then Eli sends Samuel back to bed. This happens three times before it dawns on Eli that Samuel is not imagining voices in the temple, but the Lord is actually the one calling Samuel. So he instructs Samuel to respond to the Lord, and on the fourth time, Samuel Samuel finally recognizes the voice of the Lord and hears the message that God has for him. And in the midst of this repeated misunderstanding, the author gives us a note of inspired commentary on the events in verse 7. He says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. This is why Samuel did not recognize the voice of the Lord. He did not know the Lord. You know, he's been serving now for some time in the temple under Eli. He's no doubt familiar with how to trim the lamp and what to do with the sacrifices. He's, he's learning many of the, the details of the worship of God. You remember his parents also were godly examples. His mother no doubt prayed for him for years. And they were faithful, Elkanah and Hannah, in attending the worship of the Lord at the annual feast in Shiloh. Samuel no doubt had heard many things about God. He had seen the worship of God. He was familiar with it. He was even serving God. But he did not yet know the Lord. Perhaps you are like young Samuel. Maybe you've been around the worship of God for some time. Maybe you're familiar with truths about God. Perhaps your family members are faithful Christians. Maybe you're even serving in various ways in the church. And maybe you think to yourself, this familiarity with God And the Bible is enough. The famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he married a young woman named Bethann. She attended church and prayer meetings ever since she was a child. She'd always believed that she was a Christian. She'd married a minister. She always had respect for God. She had always lived an upright life. And yet, she had not yet come to know the Lord. She had no personal consciousness of the forgiveness of her sins and no sense of joyful communion with Christ. In her own words, Bethann Lloyd-Jones put it this way, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. 
I used to listen to him on Sunday morning, and I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I don't really know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remember how I used to rejoice to see drunkards become Christians and then envy them with all my heart because they were full of joy and free. And here I was in such a different condition. She continued, I recall sitting in the study at 57 Victoria Road and I was unhappy. I suppose it was conviction. I felt a burden of sin and I shall always remember Martin saying as he looked through his books, read this. He gave her a copy of a book that explained the gospel and pointed the reader to Christ. It was called The Anxious Inquirer Directed. Bethann wrote, she said, I have never forgotten what I read in that book. It showed me how wrong was the idea that my sin could be greater than the merit of the blood of Christ. His death was well able to clear all my sin away. There at last I found release, and I was happy. What a difference there is between knowing about God and knowing God. All of you sitting here, you've been listening for the last 20 minutes, know something about God. But do you know God? We see that Samuel did not yet know the Lord, though he had spent this time serving the Lord in the temple. But notice in the process the patience of God towards Samuel. You know, Samuel doesn't get it the first time. He doesn't understand the call of the Lord the first time or the second time or the third time. And yet God does not speak to him in judgment or frustration or irritation. He patiently bears with Samuel in his weakness as he reveals himself to him. Remember how Jesus patiently revealed himself to his disciples, despite their weakness, despite their dim-wittedness. Three times he told them he would die on the cross and rise again, but it was not until they actually saw the tomb and the risen Jesus that they believed. And if you go to the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, they're seeing the risen Christ, and it says, some still doubted. God is patient with us in our weakness, as he is here with Samuel, when Samuel is slow to, to understand. If you imagine God like a drill sergeant who is just standing over you, waiting for you to fall out of line so that he can point out your mistakes and ridicule you, then let this text remind you that God is patient with his children in their weakness. A bruised reed he will not break. When we are slow to understand, we can cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. And he is patient with us. Now, on the fourth time that God speaks to Samuel, Eli has realized that this is the Lord speaking. He's instructed Samuel to respond accordingly. And now, notice the narrative slows down, verses 10 through 18. We see here in detail the word of the Lord that comes to Samuel in verses 10 through 14. And then we see Samuel acting as a messenger now to take that message to Eli in verses 15 through 18. So first, let's look at the message in verses 10 through 14. You know, Samuel, once he knew this was the Lord speaking, once Eli had told him that to, to respond to the Lord, perhaps he was excited to hear from the Lord for the first time. But his heart certainly dropped when he heard the message that God had given to him. Eli had been caring for Samuel for some time. We read in verse 6 and verse 16 that he addresses him as my son. No doubt he had an affectionate care for Samuel as this young boy that was entrusted to his care by Hannah. And yet, the first message that God gives to Samuel as a prophet is a message of judgment upon Eli 
and his house. We see, read in verse 13, this is a message of judgment for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Eli's sons had sinned with a high hand. This is a, a phrase that's used in the Old Testament for someone who deliberately defies God. It's as though they're raising their fist against God in arrogant defiance. I will not live your way. I will live my way. In the book of Numbers, Moses tells us, but the person who does anything with a high hand, he reviles the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be upon him. Eli's sons had sinned in this way against the Lord. And so when the Lord calls Samuel as his prophet, the first message he gives him is to pronounce judgment upon Eli for this sin. You know, it's interesting. This is actually not that uncommon of an experience for prophets in the Old Testament. Isaiah saw a vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6 when God called him to be a prophet. And after Isaiah saw this vision of God's holiness and surrendered himself to God, here I am, send me. God gave him a message to take to the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. It goes like this. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Certainly not a fun message to deliver when you're newly minted as a prophet. Or think of Jeremiah in chapter 1. God calls him as a prophet. He knew him from his mother's womb. And God calls him and appoints him to be a prophet. And he puts his word into Jeremiah's mouth to deliver his word to his people. And among other things, he says to them, this is God speaking. And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. But you, Jeremiah, dress yourself for work. Or in the old King James, I think it is, gird up your loins, arise, say to them everything that I command you. You see, Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of the prophets, they did not have the authority to invent their own message, to determine for themselves what God would say to their hearers. The message they delivered was the word of the Lord. The Lord determines the message and the prophet is his mouthpiece to deliver that message to his people. But when the word of God is difficult to hear, it is also difficult to speak for the prophet. Isaiah cried out when he received that vision and God gave him that message. He says, how long, O Lord, how long must I proclaim judgment against your people? We see in verse 15 that Samuel... And when the people of God are living in sin and doing what's right in their own eyes, they do not want to hear a message of judgment. Even if God graciously sends them prophets, those messages of judgment are meant to call them back to himself, to show them their, their waywardness and to bring them back to him who is the source of life and hope for them. But all too often, those people, when they do not want to hear the message of the prophet, they instead find a substitute message. They find a substitute prophet, someone who will speak to them what they want to hear. It's nothing other than what happened in the garden in Genesis 3. Did God really say? It's repeated over and over again 
throughout the history of Israel. When Ahab wanted to go up to fight against Syria, 1 Kings 22 tells us that Micaiah, the prophet of God, he spoke the true word from God and said that Ahab would be defeated in battle. But Ahab went and found some other prophets. And they told him what he wanted to hear, that he should go out in battle because God would deliver his enemies into his hand. When Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as a vassal, Jeremiah spoke to him the true word from God, that he should submit to Nebuchadnezzar, that he should serve him, and that his people would be exiles in Babylon for 70 years. Zedekiah found another prophet, Hananiah, who told him what he wanted to hear. He told him that the people would be brought back to exile and established in their own land within two years. Repeatedly we hear the false prophets cry out, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They're like one who notices a crack in the wall. The foundation, the building is in jeopardy. And rather than fixing it, they plaster over it. They hide the crack. They offer, the false prophets offer a message of hope to their listeners, even if it's a lie. But the true prophets offer a message of truth to their listeners, even if it is judgment. And you remember, this is not so different from the New Testament either. Maybe some, some of you have remembered the warning that Paul gave to Timothy as a young pastor to be on guard against false teachers. And you can hear these words, you can see them playing out in our day as well. He says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. When pastors and teachers in, our, in the New Testament and in our day, or prophets in the Old Testament, when they give their people only the messages that they want to hear, that go down smoothly, we need to beware of those teachers. We need to beware of their message. The prophet, the pastor, the teacher, they do not have the authority to invent their own message, to craft their own message to the needs of their audience. It is the word of the Lord that they must speak. And underneath all of this, there is a deceiver, the devil, who seeks to undermine the truth by presenting false teaching in a way that it appeals to the listener. He warned the church at Corinth about false teachers, and he told them in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen and 14, But such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Samuel was given a message, and his responsibility was to deliver that message as clearly and faithfully as he could to Eli, even though he was afraid, and even though the message was difficult. And brothers and sisters, this is why we believe that the regular diet of the church should be expository preaching through books of the Bible. Now, the aim of expository preaching is to explain a given biblical text as clearly as possible and then apply it to the lives of, of the listeners. It, expository preaching asks, what is the main point of the text? What is the main idea of the original author, both the human author and the divine, and what do they intend to communicate? And then expository preaching seeks to make that main point, that main idea, the main point of the message. You know, another way to put this, before asking yourself, what does this text mean to me? As though, you know, we might all read a given text and come up with different meanings. Expository preaching asks the question, what does this text mean? What was the meaning of the original author? And then, how can we explain that as clearly as possible and apply it in different ways to the lives of the hearers? 
In doing so, there will be messages both of hope and comfort, but also judgment and warning. The prophet in the Old Testament, like Samuel and the preacher today, there are times when they will afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Samuel was given a message to afflict the comfortable in verses 10 through 14. And now we see him put to, the work, put to work as a prophet in verses 15 through 18, his first prophetic task, to deliver this message to Eli. He lays until morning, we read in verse 15, then he opens the doors of the house of the Lord. It's as though a new era is dawning in Israel. But his heart is heavy. He's afraid. He no doubt loves Eli, has learned from Eli, is ministering under Eli. Eli's much older than him. Children, can you imagine? Going to speak this type of word of judgment to someone who is, I don't know, 70, 80 years older than you? Eli helps him along, though. He calls him over and then puts him under oath to tell him everything that God had said to him. All right, I'll do it. (laughs) So verse 18 we read, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. To his credit, Eli humbly receives this message of judgment. Delivered from the mouth of young Samuel, he submits to it and he accepts it. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And in this way, the prophetic ministry of Samuel begins. God not only pronounces judgment upon Eli at this time, but he's also preparing Samuel for his future ministry. We're going to continue to see in the coming chapters that Samuel will be a prophet who leads the nation of Israel through a time of great transition from the anarchy that reigned in the time of the judges when everyone did what was right in their own eyes to the time when first Saul, but then ultimately David, would be established on the throne as a monarch over the nation. And God will use the prophetic ministry of Samuel to pave the way for the rule of David. You know, this is an example to us of how God works in bringing about his purposes throughout history. He raises up leaders who will faithfully teach the word of God to his people. You can see this through other places in the Old Testament too, the stories of Hezekiah, Josiah, Ezra, also in the New Testament through the work of the apostles and in church history down through the ages. This is how our God works. He raises up leaders who will faithfully teach his word. And then he uses his word by the power of his spirit to transform the hearts and lives of his people. So let us pray that God would continue that work today in our lives. Let us be people of the book, zealous for the scriptures, eager to know them and apply them to our lives. You know, we have not been called to be prophets in the sense that Samuel was, but we have all been given the opportunity to receive a message from God and then to give it away by teaching it to others. This is the arrival of the word of, the word of God in verses 4 through 18. We've seen the absence of the word of God, now the arrival of the word of God. Notice the difference that's happened, even in the narrative. We've gone from the time when the word of the Lord was rare, now there's a prophet in Israel, and he's speaking God's word. We'll look in this closing statement, verses 19, 19 through 21, the revelation of the God of the word. Now, a new situation has arisen in Israel. Since the time of Moses and Joshua, there hasn't been a leader who would speak the word of God regularly to them. But now Samuel is there. We read in verse 19, Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. One of the ways that you could know if a prophet was truly a prophet was a simple test. When that prophet said something, did it come true? 
Conversely, if a false prophet arose and gave you a message and it didn't come true, he was not from God. And in verse 19, we're to get the impression that the Lord sustained Samuel's word. He was a true prophet. He truly heard from God, and he truly delivered that word to the people. All Israel, from, San, from um, Dan, which was in the far north, the far northern tip of Israel, to Beersheba, which is down in the south near, the, near Sinai, they all knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. For the first time since Moses, Israel is to have a prophet in residence, as it were, a man who is set aside to provide spiritual leadership and to speak the word of God. You notice the connection between the presence of the Lord in the ministry of Samuel. We see that the Lord was with him in verse 19. We also see in verse 21 that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel. This is what prepared and qualified Samuel for his role as a prophet. He knew the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by his word. Consider the grace of God toward his people. You know, if we think back to where we were last chapter, Hophni and Phinehas are doing their thing. Corruption is the order of the day. And God was silent toward them for a time. But now the light has been turned up. The light of the word of God is shining brightly again through the ministry of Samuel. God is there and he is not silent. After silence, God has spoken. Or, the words of the Reformers, after darkness, light. But let's delve just a little bit deeper here. Why does the word of God bring light in the darkness? What is it about the word of God that makes it shine truth and light into our lives? Especially if you see here, the word of God was actually a word of judgment, Look back with me at verse 7 and verse 21. I want you to to, um, look carefully at these two verses. Verse 7, we read this. Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now, verse 21, we see, For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. What is the connection in those verses between the word of the Lord... And the Lord Himself, between the Word of God and God Himself. You see the connection? In verse 7, it's actually presented negatively. Samuel did not know the Lord. And why did not Samuel not know the Lord? I think the reason is given there in the, in the next clause where it says, The Word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The implication here is that the word of the Lord brings about personal knowledge of the Lord, personal relationship with the Lord. And Samuel, the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him at that time, and so he did not know the Lord. And in verse 21, we see that connection now turned around and presented positively. We see that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now we see that Samuel knows the Lord. And the reason why he knows the Lord is because the Lord had revealed himself to him by his word. This is why the word of God brings light into the darkness. Both in Shiloh and in Reading, in your heart, in mine, and to the ends of the earth. The word of God brings light into darkness because it reveals God to us. God, who is the fountain of life, He is revealed to us in the pages of the Word of God. 
the God, Yahweh, who dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen him or can see him, but he reveals himself to his people by his word. And that word was revealed throughout the Old Testament to his prophets. It was recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. But those prophets, they looked beyond their own time. Peter says in Acts chapter 3, verse 24, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, they also proclaimed these days, referring to the days of the apostles. Peter understood that Samuel and the rest of the prophets, they looked forward to the dawning of a new age when the word of God would be revealed finally and completely. The word of God, the word of Yahweh, the word that shone light into the darkness of Shiloh by setting apart Samuel to be a prophet. It's the same word all through the scriptures that sustains the people of God in their wanderings. It's the word by which God spoke life into existence in Genesis 1. This word, a mystery we cannot comprehend, this word took on human flesh to shine the light of the glory of God into the darkness of this world. You know, God is not like us. Our word, it does not perfectly reflect our person, our being, our character. Sometimes this is because we are intentionally deceitful. We say one thing and we mean another. But sometimes it's because we just don't understand ourselves. We're limited in our knowledge. Sometimes we speak words without thinking about them. But God is not like this. His word perfectly reflects his person. It perfectly reflects his character, his being, his essence, who he is. This reflection is so perfect, it's so complete, that this word, the word is God himself. This is what we read in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so the word of God that shone into Samuel's life in 1 Samuel 3, that revealed God himself to Samuel, that same word would take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he would make God known to us in a final way. As Isaiah prophesied, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. This light was the arrival of Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh. As Paul also wrote, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final word of God to us. He is the revelation of God to us. He has made God known to us. So just as Samuel knew the Lord when God revealed himself by his word to him, so now we, in a different stage in redemptive history. So now we can know the Lord because God has revealed himself to us in his Son. This is why we no longer have prophets who receive direct revelation from the Lord to pronounce, thus says the Lord, to us. The author of Hebrews explains this change. He says, long ago at many times, this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, he's saying. He's writing in the first century, saying long ago, meaning, say, in the time of Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But 
In these last days, that is, the period of time between the first and second comings of Christ, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, that is Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. His Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the outshining of the fullness of his excellencies, Jesus Christ. He came to the earth as a man. He humbled himself to live in human weakness and limitation. He humbled himself to die the death on a cross that he did not deserve, the death that we deserve because of our sin. But he did not stay dead. He defeated death. He defeated sin. He rose again on the third day and was exalted to the right hand of God. This Jesus is the full and final word of God to us. He is our final prophet. This is why we no longer look for direct revelation from God to be given to prophets who will reveal the word of God to his people. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he caused his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit to write down what he had said and done. To inscripturate is the fancy word for that. To inscripturate the truths about his life, his death, his resurrection, and how those applied to our lives. So that his people in every age would have the word of God in written form while we await his second coming. In that day, when he returns, our faith will be made sight. We will no longer need the word of God in written form. We will see him who is himself the word of God in all his glory. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. In Revelation 21, the city is lit by the lamp, and the lamp is the lamb. He is the light of the new creation. But until that day, while we wait for his coming, God continues to reveal himself through his written word, the inscripturated record of his work throughout history, culminating in the person of Jesus Christ. If you do not know God in the person of Jesus Christ, may today be the day that you come to know him. He's the source of all that is good, and there is no greater joy than knowing him. This is what Samuel came to experience in our text. He came to know God, to know the Lord, as God revealed himself in his word. And this offer is still freely given today to all who will come to God through faith in Jesus, turning away from sin, repenting of it, and trusting in the work that he did on our behalf at the cross. This is the revelation of the God of the word, verses 19 through 21. After darkness, light. Post tenebras lux. This was the motto in Geneva where John Calvin preached. After the absence of God's word for many years, the people hungered for more of Scripture. And so Calvin preached no less than five times per week. Brothers and sisters, we have such a treasure in the free access to the Scriptures. Let us not be complacent with the word of God that we have been given. You know, unlike the 15th century, our problem is not that Our copy of the scriptures is in a language that we can't read. Our problem is that the scriptures are often drowned out 
in an ocean of information, social media, news feeds, apps, emails. May our hunger for the word of God compel you to seek God in his word. That is where he reveals himself to you. It's not just about checking a box in your Bible reading plan, although Bible reading plans are great and that is a helpful way to keep track. It's about knowing God. This is where he reveals himself to us. Knowing the word of God is how you come to know the God of the word. Imagine that, finite, limited creatures like us, knowing God, the source of all that is good, and it's through his word. And so, as Paul prayed in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, may the word of the Lord speed ahead. May the word of the Lord speed ahead in our hearts, as each of us, individually, as we read, study, memorize, and meditate upon his word. May the word of the Lord speed, in our, speed ahead in our homes through family worship. May the word of the Lord speed ahead in our workplaces in evangelism. May the word of the Lord speed ahead to the nations through the work of missionaries and Bible translators. Until that day when faith will be made sight and we shall see King Jesus, the word made flesh. Let's pray. Oh Father, we tremble in your presence. You who are the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come, You have revealed yourself to us in your word. Oh God, give us a hunger to know you in your word. And then we pray that you would fill us as we see your glory in the person of Jesus and as you shape us more into his image. In his name we pray. Amen.